Oh, I didn't realize we had a hip-hop intro. <laughs> we're, I think we're still, uh, what I've heard from producer Dom is we're working on the rejoiners because this is nice. I like, I like it, this too. But it's in it's in like the rotation for other shows. Oh, I want okay. I want to have our own distinct yeah. rejoiners that we have. So hopefully producer Dom is hard at work on that right now. But this is nice. It's no pan flute. No pan flute intro, that's for sure. Pan flute. Um, <laughs> welcome back to Canucks Talk. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance. Uh, Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at dleamc.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Um, I'm back. I, I had a true maintenance day yesterday. If anyone listened to me and Bick at the uh, at the Milford on Monday, my voice was like deteriorating with every word <laughs> that I spoke. So I was ordered to have the day off uh, yesterday by Cam Barra. And I said to Barra, you know, the good thing is I'll be back today hosting with you, Drance, which means like naturally my voice gets to ease back into things because you do so much of the talking. So it's nice. <laughs> Me? Yeah. I think what happened on Monday is like, I'm good to go. And I had budgeted mentally for doing a show with you, not with Bic. Right. Right. And so then I had to talk so much more. And I was like, oh, man, my voice isn't up for it. Got it. Yeah, fair (laughs) enough. I mean, (laughs) I don't don't know. I I don't like the idea that I'm that high usage. Like I'm uh, I'm like Alan Iverson as opposed to Chris Paul. (laughs) I should probably distribute more, but... That's so uh, that's a that's a great analogy. You're the Allen Iverson of sports talk radio. Yeah, that's how I think of you. High sure. volume, high volume shooter. <laughs> high volume shooter. Absolutely not, not very efficient. <laughs> I think I combine both though. Anyway, um, so we've talked talk it. We've talked Rutherford. Was there anything from Alvin that you found curious aside from him sidestepping? In some ways, the Pedersen question. Um. Well, okay. The, I think the biggest takeaway from an answer from an Alvin from Alvin was Patterson, and specifically not no, not necessarily just the sidestepping, but the line of he's an RFA, so we have another two years, so there's no rush. Mm. That I don't know how much of that is spin, how much of that is posturing, or whatever. I think we're at the point now where there is urgency at the situation, right? Like that line. Hey, he's an RFA, so this is actually way down the horizon. We're not too worried about it. That made a lot more sense to me six months ago, right? When Pedersen was not yet eligible to sign an extension, right? Where you could still theoretically go into the summer and take that big run at him and convince him to stay. Now that you've kind of passed that first hurdle, that first open moment of he could potentially sign an extension here and he hasn't done it, well, you start to look at the timeline and how things could play out And really what you're saying there is, okay, he's an RFA, so it's two years, we have him under team control, is you're saying that you're okay with the potential of Elias Pettersson playing next season, so like the 2024-25 season, on a qualifying offer, on a one-year qualifying offer, Mm -hmm. right? I understand why they would say, why they would put out to the world that you're okay with that. I don't think he'd sign a qualifying offer. I think you you go to arbitration if you're the player. Okay, but a one, you know what I mean. A one-year arb award or whatever it is, a one-year deal that would then take him right to UFA. I understand why the team would put out, hey, we're willing to go down that road. Like, he's under team control. We plan to have him in the organization for two more years. But if it ever came to that point, 
that's an incredibly nerve-wracking situation to be in as an organization. Oh. Elias Patterson on a one-year deal going into unrestricted free agency. That's so all, It's already nerve-wracking for the fans. And I mean, that possibility is just less than a year away now, mm-hmm. right, of a potential arbitration award. So I'm not necessarily buying the, hey, hey, RFA, two years, no rush here. Like, I think the ur- six months ago you could sell me on that. Now the urgency is real. The, I think the urgency to I think really so start thinking about, okay, where is this going? And we want to get something done. I think we're clearly in that zone now. I, I agree, but I don't think it serves him to say that. Right? I understand that. <laughs> I understand that. I, what what I would say is I thought, you know, now I talked to Alvin over the weekend uh, and ran that piece at The Athletic today because it was part of a series of interviews with yep. the three general managers from the Western Canadian teams who uh, were in Penticton. And I actually thought on some topics he was a little bit more forthcoming in that. So you can go read that at The Athletic. But, you know, the the I have no intention of trading Tyler Myers, uh, I think, mm-hmm. is an interesting soundbite. Um, discussed a little bit some of the changes that they made to the medical staff in, in the wake of last season, um, which I thought was interesting. I, I think the main thing that stuck out to me about Alvin was his commentary on Pearson and that deal. Yep. Um you know, in particular, the idea that and and I this look this matches what we've been talking about, right? Like it wasn't hard to do the math, both cap wise and just looking at the glut of wingers, um, and conclude that like, hey, Tanner Pearson might be in tough if he's healthy enough to be at camp, and and I thought Alvin was matter of fact on that, and and I appreciated that because it's obvious, it doesn't serve the club to not explain sort of the truth it. of the matter yeah and yet it felt a little bit rare right like it's rare that you'll hear you know this veteran player who had a really significant injury um whose teammates stood up for him well liked in the room like I couldn't guarantee him ice time I couldn't guarantee him a roster spot I, I mean I thought that was a, a really strong moment and I think him discussing that trade in general was a really strong moment I don't love the trade I'm, I'm gonna be clear mm-hmm. I don't hate it either it's one of those weird ones where it's like, I I see the logic. I think they needed to boost, like, what, what you know, as I've been sort of, my new checklist for the year has been, like, too slow on the back end, too small up front, too shallow in net. Mm-hmm. Well, I just lost one item off my checklist, right? Like, DeSmith is meaningfully helpful for this team in terms of raising the floor, lowering the risk of what a Demko injury could do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think getting paying a third... Now, people say getting paying a third to get off of Pearson, that's not too painful. And it's like, yeah, but, I mean, first of all, a lot of his salary had already been paid in a signing bonus, right? So you're talking about an 850K savings. That's a rounding error for NHL teams. And you are talking about meaningful cap savings, $1.4 million, but it's really only a savings of about 300 k versus what Pearson's cap hit would have represented if you'd buried him in the minors, right? So the the cap savings aren't that significant. I'd add this, too. The club still isn't in a position where they're scot-free necessarily from going on the road and carrying 22 bodies, right? If Ilya Mikheyev is on normal IR to start the season, they're only going to be able to have 22 eligible players go with them, you know, to Edmonton, Philadelphia, and and Florida. So, you know, the the cap benefit, the additional cap flexibility of this deal is, is pretty modest. The trade itself makes sense, and I thought Alvin explained it well. And I think that's important because I think a lot of people look at this team and look at their moves and really glom on to the sensibility, the apparent sensibility of that trade. 
and and sort of where I get worried about it, troubled by it, is in the big picture. Like, I really struggle to understand how you have to execute the biggest ordinary course buyout in the history of the NHL's cap era, only sign sort of depth players to contracts that everyone says are are responsible, Mm -hmm. and still need to part with futures for cap reasons? Like, that to me does not compute. It just doesn't yeah. make sense. Well, and again, to bring it back to what Rutherford says, when you're a playoff team, if everything goes right, right? When you're not yeah. at that spot. Right. You when, know what I mean? That's that's the capper on all of it. And and, and then people, the, the third round pick, like all of these things get diminished, right? Like who cares about the Oliver Ekman Larson buyout cost? The cap's going up. Who cares about the JT Miller contract and how it might be inefficient once he ages? Um, because the cap's going up. Who cares about a third round pick? Those never amount to anything. And it's like, if you're constantly bleeding this value and making these excuses, like all, everything matters in, in a hard yeah. cap NHL. All but of I these also, things have a cost. I also find the thing about like, ah, oh, who cares about a third round pick? It's like, I bet those, a lot of those same people would not want you to trade Hunter Bristevich right now. Or, or right? Victor because, Ulrich. Because as soon as they become like attached to like, oh, hey, that guy's actually pretty interesting. And maybe they could turn into something for us. Then they become very valuable in your mind's eye, right? Which is funny because most NHL teams view it differently. <laughs> the moment they become something tangible, they're like, well, we don't like his We're not shooting instincts. Yeah. Right? So, but, but, you know, a third round pick usually doesn't turn into anything. But a third round pick is always valuable currency. And sometimes you pick a guy like Tyler Madden is on those lists of like guys who didn't amount to anything. Well, you know what Tyler Madden evolved into? A really valuable asset that the club was able to use yep. to acquire Tyler to Foley. Like there's still value in managing these assets, um, you know, to to add real hockey value to your team, whether or not those picks actually do. So anyway, I didn't love that trade in the big picture, but I thought Alvin did a really good job expressing why he did the deal and why he believes in the deal. And especially from the Pearson perspective. Absolutely. Right. And just acknowledging that it wasn't just, oh yeah, no, it was a hockey deal. Right. Like acknowledging that there were uh, other factors there yep. specific to Tanner Pearson, which, which made a lot of sense. Um, we were talking about Casey DeSmith and how he, you know, reduces the risk of the goaltending little bit of goalie talk uh, at the press conference today. And specifically somebody asked Rick Tockett about, the workload and managing the workload for Thatcher Demko. And, you know, unsurprisingly, Rick Tockett's not going to go out there and say, we're going to, we want to play him exactly 50 games on the season. But I did think his answer about, you know, finding ways to kind of reduce his workload in game, making sure you're getting him those opportunities for recovery, whether it's by having a third goalie at practice or whatever the case is. You know, he also said, we want Thatcher Demko to play the lion's share of the games. Like I would be expecting a, a 60 start season like that that if Thatcher Demko is healthy that's the vibe I got from Rick Tockett is that they want to create an environment where they don't have to bring Thatcher Demko's game started down to something like 50 right they want to create an environment where he's not having to make all these athletic five alarm saves all the time he's getting more recovery in practice and therefore they can increase his game started to, to something closer to that kind of true workhorse level did you get a, a similar interpretation from from what Rick Tockett had to say I thought he was pretty guarded um you know I don't know I like I just don't know what Demko's usage is going to look like yet they used him too heavily down the stretch they used him too heavily the season before 
my views on goalie workloads are a little different, I suspect, mm. than Ian Clark's and the teams. Like, I just look at, you know, even Jake Ottinger. Like, Jake Ottinger by the conference final was in trouble. He was not Jake Ottinger from, no. you know, January. And, you know, um, like, Bobrovsky outdueling Linus Olmark. <laughs> and his workload was lighter. You know, uh, Aiden Hill outdueling Jake Ottinger. His workload was lighter. Like, if this team's going to have things break their way and make the playoffs, you might as well arrive with a Thatcher Demko that the other team's nervous about. <laughs> like, you might as well give yourself a shot to do bubble Demko. Mm-hmm. You know, you might as well give yourself that chance, that kick at the can. So, for me, I think you need to really be careful. Like, especially if things go well in the first two months of the season. I think you want to, like, if you really look at it and you're like, oh, man, we got a shot here, then I really right. think you need to get scrupulous. Now, my my view changes a little bit if you're scraping realistically to make the playoffs. Not like last year where the Canucks were out of it, but still playing Demko like he was UC Saros. But, um, you know, if you're if you're in it with a shot, then obviously his usage is going to spike a bit. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. But I think if you're comfortably making it you really gotta like i i i'd see him play 50 man yeah it, certainly if you want to like steal a first round series i'd see him play 50 and i mean look casey DeSmith should help in that in that regard well, who that's knows? a legitimate who knows yeah but i mean just in terms of someone who's he played 38 games last year right? like, but he didn't play well no but like he's done he's handled a workload at the nhl level of a legitimate backup, right? In a yeah, way yeah. that Spencer Martin hasn't really. Archer Shilovs obviously hasn't. Totally. Like, he's played games at that rate and not – it hasn't been a disaster. Even though last year wasn't his strongest season, but it wasn't a disaster season for him in Pittsburgh. He's another lottery ticket, though. Like, the thing with goalies is will you be – like, what percentage surprised would you be if Casey DeSmith gets outplayed by Archer Shilovs? Oh, like zero. Zero not that percent. I, not that I think it's going to happen, but just that it shouldn't be a surprise. How surprised would you be if Spencer Martin outplays him? No, zero percent. Zero percent. Yeah, and I, I nor would I be surprised. Like any, put any of those guys in order, nothing of it surprises me. You know yeah, what I mean? The there's only, no, there's no surprise anywhere. There. The only thing that would surprise me would be one of them like beating out Demko for the starters job. Yes, that and, would be a surprise. And even then, you know, like Spencer Martin kind of was taking Demko's workload in November of last year. Like, think about how wild that seems. Mm-hmm. And we're less than 12 months on. Like, that happened. Like, Martin was getting elective starts over Demko in November of last year. Uh, this text comes in. Do you think with DeSmith that Seelovs will be in the A for another year no matter what? I don't think so. I think there's still a chance that we could see Seelovs play NHL games uh, for the Canucks. Because as you said, there's still that uncertainty with Martin and DeSmith. Inherent uncertainty in goalies, right? I mean, I think it makes it... It creates a much clearer path to Archer Seelov spending all of his time in the in Abbotsford, but I don't think it's a guarantee now that Casey DeSmith is here, but that's the case. No, I mean, there were an absurd number of goalies. Like, the 107 goalies played NHL games last year. 107, mm-hmm. right? Which means that teams averaged 3.34 goalies used. So, provided that Arthur Seelovs are getting him a game or two as a priority over Spencer Martin playing a game or two, then we should expect to see him. Like, the probability... And, and you know, I'd price this in, right? Like, I wouldn't look at it when I say, I you know, say Demko's on 
tapped to play 55 games. Yeah. Right? I would price in, in terms of how you think about it, the fact that Seelovs might play five or that goalie third goalie X yes. is going to play five to ten. Like, I really think teams should think about it that way. Like, I don't even think you should just assume, like, well, and if an injury happens, yeah. it's like, just assume that there's going to be a portion of games started by a third goaltender. And and I would think Seelovs is first up for that. And I think he should be. I think it's helpful for a player as good as Seelovs, who's shown real polish in high-intensity environments and against NHL shooters. Um, I think it's helpful for him to get those eight games. Like, you know, Schneider got those eight games. Like, Guys get that taste before they're a full-time backup. But a year out, you know, like Seelovs is in a contract year. A year out, Seelovs is going to be making one and a half, especially if he continues the trajectory he's been on for the last eight months into this season. He's probably going to be one and a half million. So he's your backup goal a year from now. And I don't think you want him coming in cold. I don't think Mm. you want to be talking about Seelovs having three games of NHL experience in his career going into a season where... You know, he's he's a backup. You want him to get reps this year, and I, I suspect he will. Uh, this text came in earlier from Tanbeer. Question for Drancer. Won't the Canucks be able to recoup that third-round pick easily with all the one-year deals they have? Well, you and better I, hope not. Hold on. This was directed at you, but I want to field it because <laughs> – you're, you're intervening in the usual Drancer-Tanbeer argument? Because – it's there's no like I I get what Tambier is saying, but first of all, I mean what you were about to say, which is that they're only going to be selling at the deadline if they're out of the playoffs. Yeah, you better hope not. But also, the the picks you're given by the league, like that's an arbitrary number. You're allowed to go above that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not there's it's not a magic number that if you get back to it, all of a sudden that's sufficient. You you even if let's say you trade you know Teddy Bluger or whoever for a third round pick at the deadline because you're out of it you're still missing that other third round pick you traded, right? Like you still could, it doesn't, it doesn't make that one go away. You're still missing the pick that you already traded. You could still use that pick. So yeah, maybe they will be able to recoup those picks. Maybe you will be able to get some of that value back, but it doesn't prevent you from missing the ones you've already traded away. Well, I'd add this, you know, last year in the lead up to the deadline, we were talking about the Canucks having the space to like act as a laundromat if they wanted to, right? Mm. Do the Minnesota wild thing where you pick up a bunch of future fourths and future fifths. Well, if the Canucks had done that, for example, and then traded a third, it's like, okay, well they had eight picks you know what I mean? But now, I mean, over the next two years now, they've got 13 of 14, and their president of hockey operations just said they're a playoff team only if things all break right. And and everyone kind of nodded and said, I agree. Yeah, no, there was not a lot of controversy about that. It's a problem. Like, that's, that's, that's what I don't like. It just, it doesn't feel strategically coherent, is what I don't like. Yeah, it's it. just... Yes, you can get back to the break-even point, but wouldn't it even be better to be above the break-even point, right? So you're still you're still at a deficit uh, from what you could have been at, regardless yeah. of whether you go you go ahead and well, trade and the, one of these vets for picks, and then go ahead and do it. You know, I mean, it would be one thing if this team had made ten picks in the last three years. Mm-hmm. You know, like it would be one thing if this team didn't have a bottom five prospect pool, despite having made the playoffs only once in the last eight years only once in the last eight years once in the last five years I was gonna say and didn't just make two picks in the top 15 like that's why and then people you know I understand that people feel like it's a conflation between the sins of previous management and and what this management group has done but so much of it's consistent Mm -hmm. so much of it's exactly the same and that's why it's a continuation 
right, of a trend that has made the Canucks present murkier. And and the persistence of it suggests that that murkiness will continue into the future. And that's what, you know, has me concerned. The other thing that always comes up to comes to mind for me is when it's a second round pick or a third round pick. Right. And it's like, ah, it's no big deal. Look at the percentage of those that cash. It's like, well, should they trade more of them then? You know what I mean? Like they have their they have their second round pick next year. Should they trade that too if it doesn't matter? Like what's the yeah. once you buy into the idea of they don't matter at all, it's like, well, why are they holding on to any of them? Why did they make a bunch of picks in the third round this year if they don't matter at all? Right? They either matter or they don't. And I think Canucks management knows they matter. It's just they've chosen to use them in other ways. But this idea that like, oh well, it couldn't possibly matter if you trade away a third round pick. Like, well, then trade all of them if that's what you really think. But obviously, they do have some value. To be super clear, too, I I do think that they don't matter at a certain point, right? I, like, Tampa Bay has gotten to that point um, where when Brisebois trades, you know, an entire draft class for Tanner Janot, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense to me. Like, there is definitely a world. It's situational. Exactly. It's like, contingent on the situation well, your team is in. What was one of the main things I praised Rutherford in for when he came in? Cha- never those first never round making picks. firsts in Pittsburgh. Yeah. You know, and, and I've criticized Ken Holland for making too many firsts, first round selections, given the quality of his team. Like, it's situational. I just don't see how it makes sense for this team to be operating at a consistent deficit. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, training camp gets going. We talked a little bit about uh, Rick Talk and how he might run training camp in Victoria. That's going to be really interesting to see. We can dive into some of the on-ice things that we're going to be watching for, what we can learn right away uh, from training camp in Victoria tomorrow. So we will dive into that final segment of the show coming up here. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Soccer bats. Hitting the most important topics for Vancouver sports fans. The People's Show with Vic Nazar. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It is Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Final segment. Today here, Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, live from the Kintech studio, 650-650, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver, online at DunbarLumber.com. So, I wanted to suggest something. Okay. And I, I know Canucks talk is truly back because you're trying to live bet on second tier European soccer action <laughs> during the commercial break. I would never. Um, <laughs> with uh, with regard to. So yesterday we had Ryan Clark on, who's the yes. best. And he produced his Pacific Division tiers. Uh-huh. Um, and I disagreed with them, which is fine. But I thought you and I should have a baseline and then we can like modify it throughout the year. Okay. And and we'll also bring Clark in and and he'll contribute. And in the wake of that segment with Clark, I got a text from a very smart hockey guy, longtime listener. And he had I thought a really funny way of looking at it. He had uh the top tier was Edmonton mm-hmm. with the idea that because of the power play and how frequently they're called in the regular season they might be the best team in the league yep. in the regular season Vegas a, a tier lower 
with the idea that they're obviously an elite team but might not wake up till April. L.A. in third. Yep. A decided third. And then a, a tier of Calgary, Seattle, Vancouver together. And then Anaheim in a separate tier. And San Jose in a totally different tier. And I think that's dead on, by the way. I don't think we have quite wrapped our head around how yet. How bad San Jose is going to be. How bad San Jose is going to be sans Eric Carlson. That blue line. Oh, it's unbelievable. Is, whew. I like. I, I wonder if they're coming after the Avs 48-point season. Yeah. I really do. I think that Sharks team is going to be brutal. So No, I, so, no, no Meyer, no Carlson. So the thing year. I like about uh, the listener that you're mentioning, their tier is almost like one tier per team, which I appreciate. With the exception <laughs> With of... With the exception of the three in the middle there, right? Yeah. And now, I think I'm higher on LA than him. Like I, I And I, I don't think I'm ready to declare Edmonton as the breakout team in the Pacific. So I, I personally... I personally would do it like this, and then and then you okay. can quibble with me. I personally would have Vegas with Edmonton and L.A. as a tier of its own. Okay. I don't actually even think that I'd have Vegas and Edmonton materially ahead of L.A. because I think L.A. has a lot of breakout potential, having added Dubois um, this offseason and the fact that they're getting Brant Clark. Like, There's a chance that they've added two like high-end talents despite the outflow of sort of the Ayafalo, Rasmus Kupari, like depth guys I like, I, I think there's at least a case for them to be like a 110-point team. Like a really, really good team. Mm-hmm. And then I think the Calgary, Vancouver, Seattle tier is dead on. And within that, I'd have Calgary first, Vancouver second, and Seattle third. And the reason for this, like, I've been thinking about it. I think the upside of the Flames is actually highest. I know people would say Vancouver because Vancouver's got the more starry forward group. But, like, there's a world where Calgary has, you know, a top five defense core in the league. And and I think Vancouver's defense core is probably sixth in the Pacific. Like, pretty safely. Um, And so... I just think structurally, Calgary's got a path to really bouncing back. I think Vancouver would be in second because of their star-level talent, and I, I think mm-hmm. Seattle um, is just a huge regression risk to me. Um, you know, although I believe in their team speed and having Burakovsky back for the full season could help if he stays healthy. Uh, I also believe in the Grubauer bounce back to some extent. And then I think Anaheim and Calgary and San Jose need to be separated. <laughs> like, I absolutely have Anaheim as, like, not their time yet, but intriguing. You yeah. Know? yeah. And, and San Jose, I think, is going to be the worst team in hockey. So I think I would... Yeah, San Jose is going to be truly, truly bad. Um, Macklin Celebrini, by the way, former San Jose Junior Shark. There you go. Um, I think I would still cautiously separate Edmonton and Vegas into the top tier by themselves. And I'm not doing it based on like regular season performance necessarily as much as like true talent level. Yeah. Right. So I'm giving Vegas that respect as the Stanley cup champion, still obviously a very, very good team. I'd have LA in their own tier as the number three team in the, in the division. I think I would put Calgary in their own tier ahead of the Canucks and the Kraken because I'm pretty high on Calgary. And I think there's, there's just a lot of depth there. Yeah, we I, I understand the concerns about the star that's star talent that's been there, but there's a lot of depth and we've seen it work with a very, very similar group uh in Calgary. 
I, I'm pretty high on what they can do this year. And then I would have the Kraken and the Canucks. And then, yeah, I would go. And Anaheim. you'd go Kraken ahead of the Canucks. No, no, no. I, I would mean, go there's the a, honestly, putting Vancouver ahead of Seattle should probably be a hot take given that there was a 17 point gap between the It's last just season. you look at Seattle, and as you said, there's so, there's so many reasons you can see them taking that step back, yeah. right? Like, as you said off the top of the show, right? And, and we were talking about Jim Rutherford's comments. What does it look like when everything goes right? It kind of looks like what happened to Seattle last year, right? So guess what? Not everything is going to go right again for the Kraken. And, you know, uh, on Monday, Bick and I talked a little bit about the the big project up uh, at the Athletic, the player tiers in the mm. NHL, right? And look, you can quibble, and I know Canucks fans did quibble with some of the, pl- the placement of Quinn Hughes in particular, but I did think it was a really interesting way to kind of just get a quick barometer on the top end talent level of some of the different teams that we're talking about. And Seattle scores really poorly on that metric compared to not just the Canucks compared to Calgary, compared to Edmonton, LA Vegas, et cetera, right? Where they don't have that, uh, that, that same, not just that they don't have the Pedersen or Hughes tier, right. But that they don't have that kind of next tier where you have four or five guys in that next tier to kind of make up for it. Like Calgary does like LA does. And I think that's my concern with Seattle. So I would probably have the Canucks finishing fifth in the division ahead of the of the Kraken. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And then you agree with the Anaheim San Jose split. Yeah. So that's fair. Fundamentally we have the order right and our tiers slightly different. Yeah. Right? Like we have the same order, but with slightly different tiers and and we'll keep track of it. And then we can do like stock watch based on certain outcomes over the course of the year and it'll be fun. Yeah. But that's our that's our pre training But I would say also tiers. I would have Calgary, as much as I'm putting them in their own tier, closer to the Kraken Canucks tier than the Kings. Yeah, tier, yeah. Right? So. No question. And by the way, I want to name my Calgary, Vancouver, Seattle tier in Jim Rutherford's honor. The we're a playoff team of everything, if everything goes right, right tier. I think that's a, a lot of fun. Now, the interesting thing is, because I was thinking about this a lot, again, as I said, after, first of all, just sitting at home doing nothing yesterday, but also uh, after the Athletic published their player tier pieces right like that really did clarify like yeah, I kind of think the Canucks it's fair to bet them ahead of the Kraken this year the interesting thing is when you start to extend it to the central division right because it's one thing to finish fifth in your division that does not guarantee you a playoff spot you got to beat out some other teams in the central division I don't know if we want to do the tiers I, I, I don't necessarily have the confidence to do the tiers in the central uh, division right now either but it does kind of really re-emphasize to me like okay what does Winnipeg do Nashville St. Louis those are going to be it's not just about the teams in the division for the Canucks those are going to be the teams that they're really competing with and watching this season as well yeah no question and yeah I I think I think that's right and I think that's going to be actually fun I'm looking forward to it I think the Western Conference is going to be a lot more interesting than than it has been in years past especially because I, I think there's you know six teams that I'm really comfortable declaring my expectation is that they'll make the playoffs you know and and really it's five and a half it's like dallas colorado the three in the wet the three in the pacific yeah uh, la vegas edmonton and then outside of that you know i i'd say minnesota a half there's just something the, the vibes feel a little bit off for right. to me from minnesota and gustafson was so good for them last year but i don't know if he actually is that good like i need to see him do it again first I think they have the depth and the infrastructure and the top end that they'll be fine, but so I'm going to give them five and a half. But I could see Seattle falling out. Oh, yeah. And 
you know, I, I, I think Winnipeg made the playoffs last year. Yeah, like, I can see. Yeah, <laughs> that's an easy one to see falling out. Speaking of the vibes being off, right? <laughs> like I could absolutely see Winnipeg falling off. So, you know, I, I think it's and and then I think there's five realistic aspirants, or maybe even six realistic aspirants for the for the other spots. So, you know, to me that feels like a good bet to be a fun race. And and honestly, at the end of the day, as much as I'm critical about Vancouver's big picture strategy, like. I do think the Canucks are going to be in that mix. Like, I, I do think they'll be in that mix, and I'm really hopeful that we get to have a lot of fun watching it. Oh, yeah. That it's – it's so I'm so torn. At least be fun. I, I don't want to do the meaningful games in March thing because that was such a – Oh, yeah. Well, I don't no, know. No, no, no. Right? But you want them to be in the mix. You want them to have those have those actual really exciting games, those big games, I, right? I, I and just, I don't even mean for, like, the learning experience for the players. I mean for the fans. Like, big games – for the fans in yeah. March and April. That's the way I'm trying to look at with, it. With how much hockey matters in this city, like I just hope I just hope this city gets to enjoy a fun team. You know? Uh, Colin from the Caribou says, if everything goes right, is this team's slogan for the last decade? Oh <laughs> yeah, except that Jim Rutherford was using it in a very, a very, very different context. <laughs> I will say I had a comment on um, our Tyler Myers, or uh, sorry, Tanner Pearson coverage yesterday uh, that like dropped my jaw like upset me deeply and the comment was this Pearson was acquired for good Branson mm-hmm. okay who cost McCann a second and a fourth Pearson was then dealt along with a third for Casey DeSmith so the cost of Casey DeSmith <laughs> is McCann a second a third and a fourth and I was just like so upset like I wish I could explain to you how mad it made me <laughs> it's like I, I was like a cartoon character like my whole face went beet red steam coming out of your ears yeah like monsters red and <laughs> yeah it was bad uh that's incredible uh all right so it broke my heart training camp going tomorrow in Victoria okay sorry one other thing yes uh Rick Tockett on training camp yeah um you know don't read too much into the lines it's like um <laughs> <laughs> we're definitely going to <laughs> I know you're new here Rick but <laughs> well, I wanted to bring up, right, because training camp is one of those things where, and you know, Young Stars is like this, Prospect Development Camp is like this, right, where there's a, it's it's a, it's one of those points of the calendar where people are starved for kind of tangible hockey things to talk about. We're all so excited that the season is getting going and, you know, back into the ranks and covering the team and all of that. And there's always this hunger to read into so much of what we see immediately, but you also know, okay, you have to, you know, what we see day one of training camp is not going to, uh, it's not going to determine what we see opening night of the season, let alone six months down the road. But I always find it to be a really interesting process to try to kind of suss out what is meaningful and what is just, oh, it's day one of training camp. Don't read too much into it. See, right? I think everything you should read a lot into, and, and not just because I read a lot into everything anyway, yep. but because Rick Tockett, Adam Foote, Sergey Gonchar, the Twins, Rutherford Alvin have been sitting around waiting for this. No, I'm not saying they've been sitting around. They you know, went back to their, see their families and enjoyed their summer vacations and on and on. But like, They've been thinking about this. They've been thinking about their lineup for months. And this is their first chance to put some things together that they want to see at the very least. So whether or not it matters for night one, the way that this team lines up on day one of training camp is going to reflect months of thought from Canucks leadership. And I think you'd be silly not to read into it. Like it would be, it's nonsense to treat it like it's just a practice. Like, you know, it's not context free. Yeah, there are things that they want to see. There, are, there are 
concepts that have been bandied about and discussed and broken down, right, with like probably analytics reports, you know, built about them mm-hmm. and video watched and would this work and questions asked and like this is there a lot of thought is going to go into these lines, whether or not they matter for day one. Um, you know, that's a different question, but they matter without question. Well, at the very least, they tell us something about what the coaching staff wants to see, is hoping to see what they might think of some of the the players involved. So what are those things that what what are the things that you're gonna be kind of watching right off the bat, right? Like first session, training camp, day one. What do you what what are some of the questions that you have that could get kind of answered right away, or at least the takeaways that you're you're kind of curious to see uh, immediately as training camp gets going? Okay, I've got a lot of them. <laughs> I'm shocked. What should I do? A top ten? <laughs> Just go 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 with your heart, and we'll see where it takes us. All right. Okay. Despite the answer, the non-committal answer of not knowing who they're going to play with Quinn Hughes. We are going to see someone line up with Quinn Hughes who the club wants to see get the longest look there mm. on day one would be my strong suspicion. And so, you know, the club signed Susie and Cole, both of whom have played the right side. Which one of them yep. did they sign with a Hughes partnership in mind? We'll know if one of them plays with Quinn Hughes on day one. Philip Peronic could be the guy who plays with Quinn Hughes. Um, will they, should, like, will they load up a top pair? Could we see that be the answer? Or at least the the sort of first sober thought that the organization has in terms of how they want to run their defense core. Do they want to run top heavy? That to me would be fascinating. Um, I still can't shake the decision to play Akito Hirose you know, with Hunter Brustevich in the first two games of development of uh, prospect camp and then move him to the right side for the third. That, to me, still looms large. Like, do we see Akito Hirose play the right side? Or is Noah Juleson, batch, the, the Brendan Batchelor pet project of Juleson and Hughes is the right way to go, <laughs> is that something that actually gets a, gets a meaningful gets look? Gets a look. Like, to me, that's one of the most fascinating storylines that's going to come out of it. Here, here's another. Who's the third line mate? For Patterson and Kuzmenko. That's a huge one for me. Like, that's a massive, massive one. And the update on Mikheyev was going to start in a non-contact jersey, but sounded optimistic that he's going to be able to skate with the main group relatively quickly at training camp. But I thought it was especially, you know, putting aside Mikheyev's status, I thought it was especially interesting when you paired that with Tockett's answer about duos, right? And mm. immediately, what's the first duo that springs to mind on the Canucks right now? It's Pedersen and Kuzmenko. Who is going to be able to stake a claim to at least start in that third spot with them? Whether or not Mikheyev is healthy to go. If, if Mikheyev's good to go, he's going to get an opportunity there. Of course he is. But there's so many other potential options. And I think that, like, the thing for me is just... When you look up and down this lineup, even with Tanner Pearson out of the picture now, there are still so many viable NHL forwards that could be potential options. And I have, I don't have a lot of like lines built in my head that, oh yeah, we'll definitely see that group, right? You know what I mean? Like maybe it's Pedersen and Kuzmenko. Kuzmenko is uh, two thirds of a top line. Maybe it's Miller and Besser is two thirds of a second line. But there are so many different spots up for grabs, and the kind of the dominoes start with that third spot next to Pedersen and Kuzmenko. Yeah. The 
It's an interesting one. And, you know, there's lots of options that will suggest different things to me in some ways, right? Like if it's Hoaglander up there, that to me poses some pretty interesting questions about to what extent is the club catering to Pedersen, mm. right? If it's, you know, um, Beauvillier, you know, the, the question becomes, is Beauvillier really auditioning here or is he a fill-in for McKayev? Is he McKayf? a stand-in until McKayev is back? Right? Now. I mean, there's all sorts of different questions that come out based on, uh, of, based on the identity of that player. Does Garland get a look in the top six? That one stands out to me, too. Yeah. Um, definitely two guys that I'm probably most curious to see where they line up is Pia Suter and Dakota Joshua. Really curious to see that. Um, you know, the Canucks had some success under Tockett where it was like Joshua, Amon, Garland. Garland. Uh-huh. As that third line. Mm-hmm. So, do you plug in Bluger there because he's sort of the mo- the most the most like Oman yeah Oman standin or do you try and generate you know a, m- perhaps a slightly more dynamic line with Pia Suter with Pia in that Suter. spot yeah and if you do that is the line too small are you worried to have a sub six foot center with Garland on the right wing and only Joshua is sort of that tower presence well i think and this is something that i keep coming back to it's not just about how these lines how these trios are going to work together potentially but i think we'll also learn a lot about how they're going to be used right because i can see the coaching staff being fine with Suter, garland and joshua if you're planning to use that line in a very offensive role right which is something like I think that might be the best role for Connor Garland on the team anyways, is mm-hmm. to use him as the driver of an offensively oriented uh, third line. But I think if, let's say, Suter and Garland are together, I think that gives you a pretty good indication that, okay, the third line, quote-unquote, is probably going to be asked to do more offensive work than it is defensive work if you're playing those two guys together. I think you could say something similar about, you know, you mentioned the possibility of Hoaglander playing with Elias Pettersson. Right, and if it's Hoaglander, Pedersen, and Kuzmenko, and yeah, you know Rick Tockett had lots to say about how Kuzmenko put in the work and you know changed his diet so he can play the way he needs to play and play the way the Canucks want him to play. But I would still look at a Pedersen, Kuzmenko, and Hoaglander line and say, well, that's probably not going to be seeing a ton of time against the other team's top lines, despite mm-hmm. the presence of Elias Pedersen. Right, with Hoaglander and Kuzmenko as, as his wingers, that's probably not the role that line is destined for. So I think that like that is something I'm going to be fascinated by is we're going to get a really the, the lines, they're not just fun to kind of picture in your mind's eye. Okay, how are they going to work together? What kind of chemistry can they build? But it also tells us a lot about the usage that I think the coaching staff will envision for them. I'm also excited because we get to see, if we get to see special teams on PP1, and uh, did you notice in talking about running the power play, um, Rick Tockett specifically mentioned teaching in the bumper, which is, of course, mm-hmm. loaded given the departure of Bo Horvat, the team's most prolific power play goal scorer over the past two years, um, and the need to replace him with somebody. Um, we're going to have a really quick sense of what the team is looking at in terms yeah, of... With in the terms early special of, teams work. In terms of um, power play lineup. What is your... Well, and the, and then one last thing is these teams are going to be separated into two, right? Like you're going to have a group A and a group B. Yep. 
and the group A and the group B are going to scrimmage against each other. So, for example, you know that Pedersen and Miller will be on different teams because yep. to keep it relatively even, that's how you'll do it, right? <laughs> to Unless they're like, what if they were just like, we just really want to boost the confidence of the top guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love it. Put them all on group A. Well, I mean, and this does sometimes happen. Like, you know, one one thing that's um and I talked to Antoine Roussel about it, right? Uh last week, but you know, in 2011, fresh off the Stanley Cup final loss, the Canucks had like Chris Tanev and Roussel and a bunch of like you know, Owen Nolan, like a bunch of PTO guys, but then also a bunch of like young guys who ended up being stuff, but we didn't know that at the time. And the Canucks sent this absolute patsy lineup. Mm -hmm. Like, just like, Chris Tanev was like the best defenseman on it. You know what I mean? It was like, um, like Andrew Alberts, Chris Tanev, top pair. Yeah. And just like a really ugly, overmatched lineup with Max Lapierre as like the best forward. And, you know, no veterans on the team except the PTO guys that they brought in specifically to... For that purpose. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Eddie Lack in net. And they go to Edmonton and they play this like, you know, loaded Oilers side with like all the young guns, right? Like all right, right, right. Oilers looking to start the you know preseason schedule out with an easy win, and and the Canucks win two one, and it was like this fantastic lockdown game from Tanev, and you know Eddie Lack played great. Um, so that sometimes happens, and that's kind of part of the fun of the preseason and training camp too, is those yep. like wonky performances or those cool moments where the guy you don't know much about shows steps you steps up, yeah, yeah. It shows you something. So. I'm uh I'm I don't I mean I'd love to see it to be totally honest with you like I'd love to see you know the the arch deep Baines Pius Suter um you know I don't know who's a who's a winger you kind of like Aiden McDonough yeah. line go toe to toe and like play way better than you expect to get but I I mean it probably wouldn't happen right like the fact is, is that Miller and Pedersen's lines would they're really good they're really good for a reason they are really good they're the top two centers on the team uh for a reason uh 650 650 uh final few texts here as we wrap up the show uh this one uh, i want to see besser as the third line line mate see if they can rejuvenate that pd besser chemistry with kuzmenko added to it i mean i don't think there's any reason like if you're going to be trying out a bunch of people giving a bunch of people opportunities in that role i don't see any reason why besser shouldn't be one of them because of that history of him playing really well with Elias Pettersson. I know he's had success with JT Miller and that's who he played with the most last year as well. But yeah, like why not? I, the, the one thing I, not the one thing, but one of the things I really liked from Rick Tockett was he seemed to be pretty open to trying out a bunch of different things. Like, yes, of course there are things he's pictured in his mind's eye and things he wants to see and things he might wor think might work better than the alternatives. But it also sounded like we're going to see a, a bunch of different combinations and a bunch of different things given a shot. And yeah, why not? Why not put Besser there and see if you can get him off to a hot start to the season? I, I mean, for sure. I, At least, in, I, don't, I don't mean to start the season, but I mean, like, try him there in training camp preseason to see if there's anything there. Yeah, and I, I also, like, I'll be honest with you. One thing I'd like to see them try with Besser is have him maybe... At least, at least practice with or get a shot to kill penalties. Mm. Now we've never seen it before, but Besser's a pretty sturdy defensive option. Like he's positionally sound, he's smart, he's big. When he's on his game, he wins battles along the wall. And you know, this is uh, we're probably too late in the show for me to get into this because it's a big idea. But you know, when I think about Besser last season and how much he struggled 
one thing that I can't shake is, you know, coming into training camp, he was like, I'm going to score 30 goals. This is the year I'm going to score 30 goals. And Besser's been so invested in the idea of contributing by goal scoring in terms of his yep. usage, in terms of how he's been used, in terms of the team not really looking at him as, as like a penalty killing. Like, I'd like to see them do it to challenge a young player who I still think is better than he's shown the last couple seasons to challenge him to measure his contributions to this team in more than goal scored. And I just think it would be like a simple way, like let him audition. Yeah. We don't know if he's good or not. We've never seen it. You know, I, I, he'd need a speedy line mate with him. I'm, don't get me wrong, but like, I see no reason why Brock Besser couldn't be really good. And I think it would be an interesting message to send to a guy who's at his best on this team when he's focused on the two-way elements of his game, the playmaking, and not the goal scoring. I think it would just be an interesting way of tweaking the message you send him. We will get answers to so many of these questions starting tomorrow at Canucks Training Camp in Victoria. Of course, we will have live coverage of it here. Uh, wall to wall, you are listening to Sportsnet 650.